Today's episode is brought to you by Savage Apparel Company, the ultimate apparel company. Now offering made in Europe, fully sublimated team gear. Check out savageultimate.com to start your order today. Welcome to Eurozone, the podcast about European Ultimate. I'm Ravi Vasudevan, joined by Liam Grant, and we've got a nice show here for you today. And if you're a rules nerd, later on in the show, we're going to have Ruben Berg on to talk about the new rules, 2021 to 2024 WIFDIF rules. But uh, before we get there, we have a few things to talk about. And to start things off here, Liam, how are things going with you in these really, really strange times? Yeah, things are, things are going good. Uh, I actually... Worked on an ambulance today. Ooh. Yeah, with my EMT license. First time I got drafted up to help out. I was working with actually the Red Cross, but we're like tasked for patient transfers, which I'm very happy to help, but they're actually a, a tiny bit boring. You're usually just like picking someone up and who's quite sick and bringing them to hospital. Usually do procedure, waiting, bring them back. So I drove to Cork today. Uh, it's the first time I've left the county I live in, Clare. First time I've like really been... 10 miles from my house in like four <laughs> months, which I, I didn't even realize until I actually left. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this whole other country thing. And it was really, it felt really strange. But yeah, I went down to Cork and I actually got with like an hour while they were doing a procedure to actually, I walked around a park for a little bit. So yeah, I'm actually working tomorrow again on the ambulance for Red Cross. It's long days. I left at like 9 a.m. I got home at like 8.30, so p.m. It'll probably be the same tomorrow. But I'm glad I can help. My sister works in a hospital. She's a pharmacist for actually cancer patients. And uh, she's been guilt tripping me all this time because she's been, you know, working in a hospital really hard and has to do kind of tighter restrictions because she's, you know, at, meeting at risk people. And I was like surfing and like sunbathing. Not that I actually sunbathed, but <laughs> she was guilt tripping me. So that's actually the main reason I'm doing it. So, so my sister can stop <laughs> guilt tripping me. <laughs> I have weird motivations sometimes, but it's doing the right thing, I, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Did you um, pick up any COVID patients or, or is it... No, no, we're touch? like picking up people doing like normal procedures. They could task me with COVID stuff, but at the moment they're not at all. They're actually trying to keep the other us away from COVID. So not, not COVID patients at all, but we had to do all well, wear masks and la di da da yeah, over here in France, they like uh, recording this on the 15th. So today they opened things up in a big way. The borders are open, I think, except for Spain and UK, or maybe they can come, but not by they have to they have to quarantine. They can still come in, but they have to still self quarantine when they get in. But uh, basically within Europe, borders are open. Basically, life is back to normal in France. Uh, I, I go out there wearing a mask and like less than 5% of people are wearing masks. It just looks like life is normal. The restaurants are open. You have to be like one meter away from each table. Like tables have to be one meter apart or something with no maximum of 10 people. I think they might have even removed that restriction today, but it just looks, that just looks like a normal restaurant. Like most of the time tables aren't that much closer to each other anyways. So they, they think it's just basically safe. We haven't started team sports here yet. Um, I do know that uh, in Switzerland, they're, they're allowed to play ultimate and the team I play for in Switzerland had practice yesterday but I couldn't go because the borders were still closed. So even though I, I live on the Swiss-French border, I couldn't go practice in Switzerland because of that. I don't know if I would have anyways. It's still a bit 
I still feel a little weird, like going back into real life. It's still tricky, but uh, um, yeah, it's uh, looking like it's going back to normal. I, I'm very worried about the second wave. Uh, maybe I'm just extra paranoid about this stuff, but I know in previous influenza cases, there's always been a big second wave in the fall. So I hope it doesn't happen. And uh, right now it seems people are saying it's safe. So I don't know. We don't we don't have a fall in Europe as well, Ravi. It's called autumn, so I don't know what this fall thing is. <laughs> is that like a UK English thing? They don't say fall. I actually didn't even know that. We say autumn, autumn. In the in the US, we say both. We can say fall or autumn, but uh, autumn you guys sounds cooler all the time. Yeah, I've, we never use the fall. Very Americanism. <laughs> Sorry about that to all people who hate Americans on this podcast. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we do have quite a, th- a lot of things to cover. We had a pretty long interview with Ruben. Um, we're going to see if we can get through everything. It might be a long podcast, which, you know, is great for the people that are still quarantined in. A lot of stuff to listen to. So first thing we got to talk about is the XCUCF. We've talked about before on the show. They're fully planning to have it first weekend of October. It's going to be in Bruges, Belgium, if it happens. Right now, they're trying to get teams interested, and they released their bid distribution today. Um, as we had said before, they're not going to have any EUCRs. It's just going to be countries get a number of bids. I do know that in the email sent to the countries, they recommended that you use last year's nationals as how to pick your teams, but it's up to the federations on how they want to do that so they can use another event or try to do something before. They do want the teams by July 12th, but I know that in one case, which we'll get to in the women's division, they might be allowing for something a bit different. Uh because of one specific case. But yeah, so look, look, we got 20 mixed, 20 women's, and 32 open teams going for this extended UCF. So what was released to the public uh, at the time of this recording was just how many bids each country got. But Ted Bauta, the treasurer of the EUF, actually went through and looked at last year's nationals results from every country and gave us a spreadsheet of if federations do that, who would get qualified? So we can kind of go through that list here for the listeners. But first off, overall, what are your thoughts looking at uh, this bid distribution and the, the thought of whether this is actually going to happen or not? Yeah, I kind of I probably feel like 50-50 on it now. I know Ted is kind of hopefully confident it will, but this is definitely just fun to talk about anyway, even if it doesn't happen. So <laughs> uh, I, I remember in our last pod, was our last pod or two pods ago, I was trying so hard to figure out a way to not give Ranla a bid, and I struggled <laughs> really hard, but fair play to EUF, they thought long and hard, moved some stuff around, and managed to give one to the fucking Ranla, and burned them so hard. Oh, they, they got like squished from all different sides here to not get a bid. And it's brilliant, and it's made me so happy, actually. It's been the highlight of my week. That's, of course, if Ireland use Irish yes. nationals to decide who gets the bids. If they use, like, UCR finish from last year, then Ronald would get the bid. Do you know yeah. offhand what they would be using? Well, everyone presumed they're using national championships, but unsurprisingly, the <laughs> what we call in Ireland the Dublin bias uh, is coming to play here, and they're saying, no, we should use UCR West. And, like, there's actually so much to the story, so I'll try and keep it brief, but, like, UCR West has a really stupid format in that it's basically straight knockout, this win the UK championship. So if you win your first four games, you've won because the fourth game will be the final. So uh, it was designed then as well to have kind of a backdoor system to get the four best teams because that's how yep. many bids there were. So that's how they structured it. It's like where the best team will win and the best four teams at the event will get the bids. And that's what happened. 
But Devin is kind of the outlier there in which I can't remember. So they won their first game probably against the rubbish team. I can't remember if it was like Manchester or Emo or something they played in the quarterfinal that got them to semis, which they could no longer go any lower than fifth. And they played like a 3-4 game and then played a 4-5 game. And uh, three Irish teams was below them. We had Rebel, Pelt, XVI in that order, finished 6-7-8. And actually, Devin never played any of them. So, one, Devon are just not the fifth best team, you know what I mean? And I don't think it really allowed <laughs> the schedule to filter out that way. So I think I think it's very strange to use UK nationals to decide which Irish teams go when we had a later event that was more recent, which was Irish nationals. And that's how we decide the bids for that. So to me, it seems like one is recommended by EUF and they would definitely not be saying this if Ranla had won this. They would. This is solely like trying to figure out a way to get Randall in and squish Pelt. But uh, <laughs> I feel like it definitely should be Pelt because we're Irish champions, so we should get the one Irish Open bid. I don't know why it would be anything else. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Like, the way they determined the bids for this year, the number one thing they did was just what the bids would have been normally. So for a regular EUCF, so the first 12 mix, the first 16 women, and the first 24 men's teams are just what the bids would have been. I think they went like by region and then based on regional finish last year or something like that. So somehow EUCR West, I think maybe got a fifth bid because I see that that Devon are in the top 24. So probably normally that would all go to the West and it's because Devon finished fifth that they ended up getting that spot. Like if an Irish team finished fifth, then yeah, an Irish team would have got that spot. So it's a bit weird. So if the regular regionals would have happened, it just would have been the fifth best team at EUCR West and they probably would have had to restructure it. But because of the way it's going now, now you really got screwed by last year's format. And that's unfortunate. I, I wonder if other regions have similar stories uh, <laughs> analyzing what's going on, but we don't know. I'll just go through some of the lists of teams, the way Ted did it. Again, this is assuming each country is going to use national finish, which we don't know if they will. So here in the mixed division, we've got Salaspils, Hrut, SOBR Moscow, Smog One from the UK, Flow from Poland, Seskidistis from France, Colorado from Germany, Discover Lisboa, Deep Space from UK, Mainzel Renner from Germany, and Leftovers from the Czech Republic, Fum Orobro, so those were the 12. That was kind of what it was going to be if there was normal. But then adding on the XUCF, we also have Goyota from Spain, Cosmo Maribor from Slovenia, who's going mixed this time, Drop That Smile from Lithuania, Steamhuck from Turkey, Ultimate Saku from Estonia, Out from Hungary, Zoltan team, I'm pretty sure, um, Pancake Circle from Norway, and Rebel from Ireland. Nope, so that's got that one wrong. Irish mixed yeah. champion are Pelt. Pelt are Irish mixed yeah. champions. <laughs> Okay. I said this too, so <laughs> presuming that IFDA aren't going against the grain here, that Pelt, as we did for UCR West, we had two teams at UCR West mixed and open, we should get two bids. We should have a Pelt mixed and a Pelt open team at UCF and Randall should have no teams. That's how that's how it's going to go. <laughs> Rebel definitely did not, they didn't even finish in top four even. There was Jabba in the final with us, I think. I don't know when Rebel 2 finished higher than Rebel 1 anyway. I think Rebel 2 (laughs) finished like fourth and Rebel 1 finished like fifth. So I don't know where he pulled Rebel out of. Uh, I think it's just he probably assumed from the... So again, take the rest of these results with a grain of salt because we've already seen one error in the Irish uh, situation. But maybe he just assumed because Rebel got third at UCF the year before that they would have been the best mixed team. But 
apparently that's not the case. <laughs> no, Rebel 2 are better than them is what we've learned. Yeah. But yeah, it looks like a pretty good mixed tournament. I I think this would be really cool. I'm also not sure Sescadistas were French champions now looking at it. I think it might have been Itzaka or Chuck that, that won last year. I can't remember off the top of my head. So yeah, take this with a grain of salt. We don't know all this for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think Ted was saying something about like they allowed countries to pick like one division they favored. Did you hear anything about this? Or they have, like, Yeah, I know like some countries, I believe... Finland, for example, was asked whether they wanted to play women's and open or mixed or, you know, what they wanted to do. And Latvia, for example, was asked, you know, Salisbill's men's team has also been really good in the previous years, whether they wanted to go mixed or not. So I think there was some some asking of interest for getting these bids as well, rather than just the rules they laid out. And I do know that also. So after the uh, first like set of like who would have qualified from last year, the next thing they tried to do was make sure that each country that has been part of the EUF gets at least one bid to the EUCF, which doesn't usually happen. Usually you have to qualify. But since this is like the only ultimate event of the year there, I think they're trying to get like more representation like they, they would at a national team event or something like that. Yeah. So another way that Randler got squished, I don't know, I use the word squish a lot. I hope people understand what I mean. Um, Let's, see, let's use another word, fucked over, <laughs> is uh, I think up until two or three days before they put this out, they were the, was it the 32nd team or the last team on the list? But then Slovakia changed last minute and be like, hey, actually, we want them to open instead of mixed. So because, as you said, they want to representation from whatever countries want to go, they skipped Randall in the queue and Randall got bumped number one in the waiting list, so... Uh, yeah, just the world hating on Randler right now, and I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I said to Ted, I'm buying all the Slovakians a beer, and, uh, <laughs> presuming that both Pelt Mixed and Pelt Open go, and we can have a big party with the Slovakians. Yeah, so we'll, we'll go to the Open Division now, which is the next one I have here. So going down the list of if the national teams were good, and if Ted got the national teams right, which we said both of those things we're not, we're not sure about, but we've got uh, Lafota, Clapham, Chevron, Real 5, Bad Skid, Fui, Costa Rica, Alba, Free Speed, Pelt, Flying Angels, Is No Good, Kuzb Red Bulls, Mooncatchers, Ketchup Graz, MUC, Sieben Schwaben, Wall City, Forward, Jupiter, Sokol, Moira, Devon, Otso, so that's the top 24, so then these are the countries that like they want to let in to represent that they have new age from Israel and outsiders from Slovakia. And then third, they tried to do some some other qualification, which was a country's history over the last four EUCFs. So I think then they're letting in Crazy Dogs, Ragnarok, Prague Devils, Odin, Stockholm, KFK and Chuck. So I think, yeah, these countries have generally had more than one team at the UCF and Ireland has never had more than one team at the UCF so like Ronald is also getting squeezed by the fact that none of the other Irish teams qualified last year <laughs> yeah that's like weird we've we've jumped regions and so much weird stuff has happened to Ireland but uh they sound like teams all better than Ranlet to me that's that's what I hear <laughs> Odin Stockholm that's a that's a team <laughs> yeah I've never heard of them yeah never heard of them probably better than Ranla. <laughs> Um, okay, and we'll get to the women's, which I think is one of the more interesting things. We have other things to talk about, so try not to take too long on this segment. But so we got Kuzp Shout, Elvis Presley, who are the Russian champions. That's uh, Olga Kochanova's team. 
So she she plays with like whoever at international tournaments. But in Russia, she plays with Elvis Presley and and probably was a big reason why they won the Russian championship. Then third place is questionable. It's uh, the French champions. And there's a problem here, Liam, because last year the French women's championship got lightning stormed out and Detonant, which is the female team, was up on Yaka at the time of the rainout. But because not enough of the game had been played, the French Federation has declared them co-champions. So now is the question mark of do you take the fact that Nantes was up on Yaka to give them the bid? Or do you take the fact that Yaka, you know, got second at the ECR, whereas Nantes got fifth, though I know that Nantes didn't bring uh, their top squad there. And then Yaka got, I think, third at UCF and say, okay, maybe that's a reason why they should be going and not Nantes, who's never done really anything on the international stage. But from what I understand, both teams want the bid and the French Federation is going to have a tough time deciding this. What's what's your call here, Liam? I think they should enter a team called Yants and just amalgamate <laughs> the two teams together. Or I'm wondering, are they within like 200 kilometers of each other? So they, could they meet at one central? You know, you can travel 100 kilometers in France for now, right? That's, that's all lifted now. Oh. Travel in France is all good starting yesterday. Like they can surely have a game at some stage to decide this, <laughs> right? I know maybe Ultimate's not allowed yet, but... Oh, yeah. Sports aren't allowed yet, but I've heard that maybe starting June 22nd, sports might start to be allowed, which means neither team has practiced. Uh, like, until I think then. it has so to be like little... midnight June 22nd, as in 0023rd. <laughs> no practices. No practices Let's allowed. go. Just... <laughs> yeah. Gonna f- I have to fly in Robin Fennig for two weeks earlier to self-isolate for two weeks. And then she just emerges from like a cave and just, let's go. <laughs> All right, so Liam's calling for the game. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I mean, I think Yaka's probably the better team. I mean, on average, not getting better. And there are other good French women's teams that have been getting better over the years. But Yaka's got a medal at UCF last year. So <laughs> it'd be really weird for them not to get an invite. But like in the other categories, France, I don't think has ever in recent history had two teams in the women's division at UCF. So they're not going to get an extra bid there. So if we, if we go down the list, so yeah, it's the French champion, then Rebel from Ireland, because they were the Irish champions, 3SB, Mainzelmachen, Heidelbarschen, Iceni, Yellow Fuyaver, Cosmic Girls, Troubles, Flying Rabbits, Fabulous, Bristol Women. West, which is the second place Swiss team from uh, last year, which is the team made up of Geneva and Lausanne area, Atletico from Finland. Then Diki Krali from the Ukraine, Box from Austria, Arhus in the middle of Denmark from Denmark, and then Gravity. Why does Gravity, like, I'm trying to think, because this third category is previous finish. On the fourth category is what? The 2020 waiting list order per region minus the already appointed bids at two and three. Okay, so I guess they decided that on the 2020 waiting list, the West was in the waiting list and Rebel was next on the... West, so then that's why Gravity takes Rebel's bid. So luckily for them, uh, Rebel did better in the in the women's division. Then that's the rest. So that they are <laughs> sneaking their way in there, Gravity. <laughs> like so lucky that they're actually getting a bid. Uh, I really wish another country just put together a women's team to squish them. <laughs> Any other countries out there that aren't in? Though, oh, it's too late now, is it? Uh, I think it might be Estonia too late now. women. Uh, Bulgaria. <laughs> you can make a many Bulgarian team teams. Israel. 
I don't know. Surely, <laughs> surely we can squeeze another women's team in there. Uh, yeah. No, it's funny because if they come in like bottom seed or I don't know how that's going to work. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Actually, Rebels beat them, which would almost seem like they weren't going to get a bid. But because Rebel actually did pretty well at uh, UK Nationals, they're both denying and saving Gravity <laughs> at the same time. So, yeah, obviously, if Gravity go, pff, I, I think they might be my favorites to win it, which is ironic because they literally got a bid by the skin of their teeth. <laughs> hey, it's better. It's better. I remember... 2016, I think, Krutz got into the EUCF because the German teams were disqualified because of the spirit timeout thing from the Brooklocker uh, during the spirit timeout. And that's the only reason Krutz got in, and then they made the final of EUCF. <laughs> so <laughs> getting in by the skin of your teeth and doing pretty well has happened before. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else to say about the sexy UCF? I mean, it's cool to see this list of teams. I've like forgotten how cool it would be to have frisbee tournaments in Europe after all this time. I would be so excited if if something like this could come together in October. It'd be the best EUCF ever, just because the amount of teams there. It'd be a massive party, and like everyone's going to be there except Ranala, obviously. But everyone else <laughs> is going to be there. <laughs> Ranala is first on the waiting list, so I do think they have uh, a decent chance of. If some anyone's other, like, country. worried about numbers, I will find you pickups. I will find you the team. <laughs> Make it happen. You're short of money. I will organize a GoFundMe. I think it's more whether the countries will allow Ultimate to play or not is the thing that's okay. uh, probably going to well, keep a, a team from coming. And I imagine there's probably one country out there. No, it's probably going to be UK, isn't it? They're going <laughs> to screw it up. And... Yeah, the, the ones that I've heard are the most questionable right now are the UK and Russia, because uh, Russia's having a peak now. So they're, they were a bit later than everybody. And the UK is still pretty locked down. And they won't even be in Europe at that stage, so. <laughs> True. I'm sure they'll figure out a way to mess it up anyway. Okay, I think that's enough on the ECF. Let's go to the next topic here, which is the WIFDIF budget. You're on the WIFDIF board. Did it get released because of my opinion piece, or is that, <laughs> that, that giving myself too much credit? You're giving yourself way too much credit. I know <laughs> there was a lot of questions, and they decided to put together a frequently asked question document that had very little to do with you, Ravi, but, you know. You do yeah, some great I'm work. I'm going to choose not to believe that. I, I wrote an opinion piece calling for transparency and a budget, and then a budget came out two days later. I'm pretty sure that was on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were not the only one to ask those questions. But. <laughs> Anyways, budget came out. I'm working on an analysis piece on this budget, and I've asked some questions to WIFDIF. I'm trying to get in touch with the TOC to get some of their opinions on it to better explain what some of these line items mean. But there's a couple things we can say here. Um, first off... I think the thing that everybody is looking at glaringly is the line item for the human resources, a.k.a. the TOC's staff salaries. And the very, very interesting thing about this, and again, I've reached out to TOC. They have not given me a comment yet. They might be giving me a comment later, so I don't know everything. Right now, this is just my opinion on this topic. Put out that disclaimer. They budgeted for 2020... 150,000 euros, which on a 1.2 million euro project, that's like, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay to pay people's salaries for that. But they then committed, in the event that the tournament was canceled, 189,000 euros. So they went 26% over their budget on their salaries when there was no event. And that's weird. Sounds like a bargain to me. I can't see <laughs> one thing wrong with this budget. That's all I know. An absolute bargain. And then 329000 another bargain. 
These guys <laughs> should be doing every event and I'll not have an ill word spoken about them. <laughs> I got bribed by them earlier. No, I'm obviously lying and joking. Uh, no, I think I think 150,000 is a lot for uh, for running an event. Okay, I understand like when you, I think this was almost an experiment for WFDF about let's try an event management company outside of Ultimate. There may be benefits to that. And I'm, I'm absolutely fine with the going into that and it's like okay it was always going to be expensive but yeah it's bizarre a little bit ridiculous as well i know they may be the under budget stuff but i think it's too expensive and to be honest i think probably a lot of people in wfdf think that now as well but we're in this bizarre situation where i know the irish phrase kind of in for a penny in for a pound like I know, maybe we should talk to you all this stuff before I give my, like, concluding thoughts, but we're probably better off going along with it. <laughs> is, <laughs> is, I think we'll talk yeah. about other stuff, and I'll, I'll say it at the end as, as to why I think that, but maybe we should break down the budget a bit more. So the 150, again, that's debatable whether you think that's, you know, you're saying you don't like, you think it's too much. I think an argument can be made there, but even if it is an, an accurate amount, how can you get 26% more than what you budgeted when you don't do the event and then for 2021 so that this is the total salary so they're basically saying if we have to do another year's worth of work we're gonna more than double what we charge for the first one so it goes from 150 to 326 now again i've I've done some event organizing i think a lot of the work's been done already like i don't think they have the same amount of work to postpone it And I know they want to keep a salaried person on, but that to me is like a bit ridiculous that they're going to charge the same amount given that they probably already got the contractors lined up. All they have to do is like say, hey, what we did this year, can we do it next year? And yeah, that's work. I'm not saying it's free. Obviously, it should be more than 150,000, but to more than double it to me is just dubious. I don't know. I completely think we're being taken advantage of in this situation. And I'm sure the point they will make, and I feel like, you know, the board and WFDF look at this and have the same feelings we do. I don't think they're like, yeah, cool, whatever. I don't think that's the impression they get. But I think the reality is, I imagine TOC are saying something like, well, all our events are cancelled. We have to pay people or else our company won't exist. So if you want us to do it, this is how much it costs. And that's kind of maybe the approach they're taking. I don't think they've actually given a lot of details as to why. This has gone over and like certainly we haven't I haven't seen that. I know you haven't seen in greater detail as to why they've gone over budget. But uh, I feel like that's the argument they're going to make. And yeah, I, it's, I think it's dubious is a great word to describe it. And you know, another thing that I was told about this budget is that the 2020 budget that was shown was actually like the initial budget, like at the very beginning of the project, back when they thought they were going to have 120 teams. So you'll notice that in the 2021 budget, a lot of things are are a lot lower. Um, but from my understanding, that doesn't necessarily mean like, and the thing that was curious is that if you if you look at the 2021 budget, it's 1.236 million and the 2020 budget is 1.231 million. So it's almost like they got to the same number. So I was thinking maybe that what WIFDIF was doing was like, okay, we have to pay the TOC a bunch more. Let's reduce everything by the same exact amount so we can get to the same budget. But I was told, no, that's not the case. That's actually kind of coincidental. They were trying to see what they could do each item at, and it just happened to work out that way. So it's not like they cut a bunch of stuff or or whatever to try and account for the TOC's extra thing, even though that's what it kind of looks like. 
But the other thing that I noticed about it is that because that WGC thing was 120 teams, if you change that to 97 or 95 teams or whatever is going on was going on for 2020, um, they actually would have been there would have been a deficit. So right now it looks like there's an 8,000 euro surplus based on the 2020 budget. But if you take that same expenses and then calculate it for 97 teams, you're actually way under. So this budget, what I'm told is that that doesn't necessarily mean they would have lost that much money. What it means is that that budget for 2020 isn't really comparable to the 2021 one because that was like the initial plan when they thought they had more teams and probably the numbers would have been lower there. So that's yeah, just another thing to know that, that when you're looking at this, what might have happened there. Um, anything else that you wanted to talk about on this budget? I think I wanted to give like an overview of how I think we should react to the situation. Like, okay. having been on the board, and obviously can't talk about everything we, we chatted about, but there maybe is some stuff. I just want people to know that I think WFDF are actually t- taking a financial burden themselves. I know there is paid staff. I think pretty much everyone has taken some kind of wage reduction. Some people even not getting paid anything at all. So I know people are going like, maybe feel like WFDF are, are not feeling the hit. I know financially they're taking a big hit as well. They're going to lose a lot of money this year because that's how yeah. they make a lot of their money is doing these events. So I want to get that across that they are, I know they haven't really said that as much in their FAQs and stuff, but they are taking a burden. And there's a lot of, I have a lot of respect for Karina and Brian and, and other people who work on these kind of events. So I want to get that across yeah, like part of me just wants to be like, screw these TOC guys, right? Like, the, I'm sure everyone has that feeling of like, what's going on? Like, these numbers don't make sense. And, and I think people on the board feel that as well. But there's so many ways we can go about this. And I think the best way is we try and make this event happen. I know WFDF have tried thinking about different ways where they can reduce the budget and maybe that 150 euro player fee is maybe something closer to like 80 euro. In which case, we just have to pay 80 euro more and the event can happen and hopefully it goes down well. Well, that's a that's a good resolution in my books. I think a lot of people are thinking about how about we just try and get our money back or are we entitled to our money back? Because this is, uh, you know, a sporting event or like a festival. And I know me and you have looked into what like Dutch law says or what the government are saying. But we, we also got to remember that TOC is, as far as I know, a limited company and there's a lot of event management companies going bankrupt that if we go, hey, we don't want to do the event anymore. Give us all our money. We try and do it somewhere else. We try and get someone else to do it. There's a high possibility they just go, well, actually, our company's toast and our bank accounts are empty. See you later. And then we end up with no money back. So that's a possibility that, you know, WFTF have to think about and we still kind of think that maybe these TOC people are nice. I met them in WUCC because they flew over to look at a Frisbee tournament, which, you know, <laughs> gives you gives you an idea of how they spend their money. I remember thinking this is a bad sign. I was like, you know what? There's a great Frisbee tournament down the road called Windmill. <laughs> Rather than flying to America to see how Frisbee tournaments run, just literally get in your car and go like an hour down the road. But yeah, like... You probably think they've already done so much marketing and websites and, you know, planned pitches and all these bookings and stuff that if we do try and cancel it, I think it's there's a big chance we'd lose more money. So we've made this bed. We're probably just better off sleeping in it, is is my thought. So just on that note, just, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I think we need to be careful with 
villainizing events companies too bad and realizing how bad things are for them. I looked a little bit into this to see what's going on with Dutch Law, to see what's happening with festivals and concerts. I couldn't find stuff about like, Ultimate's a really weird thing because we're a big amateur sport. So it's like even a sporting event wouldn't be applicable because that's normally fans going to an event that bought tickets, not the players. So it's like, there's not really like a, I couldn't find anything on what's what to do for an event where players are paying to attend it. Um, an international event where players are paying to attend it. But my only thing about worrying about bankrupting the TOC is that I know a lot of governments are helping these events companies out. And so if an event gets canceled, that the government will pitch in like the losses that the events company would take. I don't know what the Dutch government is doing. So that's just my only thing is that if the Dutch government is, and the, the Netherlands is a pretty, you know, high functioning, high GDP democracy. So they do have a, you know, very good government that might be helping companies like this out in this crisis. I don't know the situation, but if the TOC has the option to tell the government, Hey, we lost this event. Can you help us? And the government would do that. Then I would hope they're trying to do that, not like just saying, oh, we'll just take the money from the WIFDIF players. That's the only thing. But again, haven't got input from the TOC and I'm not a lawyer on Dutch law. I don't know the exact situation there. I just looked at concerts and for concerts, like people are have the right to get their money back. But I don't know if that applies here. No, yeah, it's definitely if anyone out there listening knows a lot about this, maybe someone in the Netherlands can give an opinion or contact us, please do. We'd love to hear about that more. Uh, I guess I have one message from WFDF as a bit of a spokesperson as, as on the Athletes Commission. I think uh, Karina and WFDF have asked teams to respond pretty soon and how they feel if they want to opt in or opt out. Uh, I'd If you could please respond to that. <laughs> I know a lot of teams haven't done so yet. And again, even though I'm not happy about a lot of the budget stuff, I think there's still things to be negotiated. I still think it's probably best to try and opt in. I do know because Zoltan e- emails me all the time. I don't know if you know this. I get lots of emails from Zoltan that I believe Hungary have already opted out. I think that might be the only one that's definitely... I don't know for sure. I don't I don't see those emails. But I do know that Zoltan said that he doesn't trust TOC and is out. So He definitely commented a lot on the Facebook post. So I saw saw him out there. When the budget did come out, he wasn't super happy about it, I think. So you can side with Zoltan or you can side with... <laughs> <laughs> and I will say I made my own spreadsheet of these numbers and the more teams that go in, the lower that extra fee is. So you can think about it that way. If if a bunch of teams opt out, it's going to be more expensive for the rest of the Ultimate community. But if we all just go and opt in, the extra, extra fee is going to be not that much. And so something to consider. If all 97 teams went, the, the extra fee is much lower than if only 85, which is the minimum they want to do, would go. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, whew, worlds. So last thing to talk about before we get into the interview with Ruben, um, I just wanted to quickly mention this. Uh, Ulti Worlds, you know, our hosts here on this podcast put out an um, article, which actually was super well done by Steve Sullivan called basically A Decade in Ultimate. And it was really, really cool. You could kind of click through. The interface was super slick and it basically went through what or a bunch of landmarks of like big stories that happened. I think they maybe picked the 50 biggest stories that they decided. I was not consulted, even though I'm an editor at Ulti World. I was not consulted about picking stories. Uh, <laughs> put that out there for reasons that'll become obvious when I get to them. Um, super well done. Really cool. I really enjoyed it. So I just want to throw that out off the bat. But there weren't very many stories about anything that happened outside of US. I think the only things 
that were there were maybe Russia winning Beach Worlds against the U.S. And Revolution, maybe it was like one or two stories about, I think, when the Columbia World Games team beat the U.S. and when Revolution won the U.S. Open. And there might have been like one other international article. So yeah, that's lacking a bit of international stuff. And if you want to hear our opinions on what, you know, were some of the top moments of the decade, then feel free to check out our subscribers only segment. We're going to put that in there for your listeners. I think aside from that, we can go to the interview. We've got a nice long interview for Rules and Nerds. If you don't care about the rules, you can turn this off because it's not going to be interesting to you. But for those of you who kind of want to understand a lot of nuances about the new rules and, and what's been put in there, and, and we, we talk about the rules in general for a little bit. We got Ruben Berg, the rules benevolent dictator, I think he calls himself there. <laughs> yeah, and Ruben's just a great guy. And, you know, in my experience of traveling the world and going to so many events, I've met Ruben lots of times. And he's one of those characters that, you know, really loves the sport. And I think we're very lucky to have him. So it was great to get him on the podcast. And, you know, you've probably seen him. He actually works as a game advisor. Well, I think it's volunteers as a game advisor quite a lot. And uh, it was great to get his perspective on things. We didn't ask him much about game advisors. I mean, that's something. I know. I just realized that. I forgot. I was supposed yeah. to tell him how we, game advisors. We talked advisors. to him for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember we talking about technology and he's like, sometimes it's wrong. I was like, do you know what's wrong? game advisors <laughs> every we need, to, er- we need to get we need to get him and olivier on a podcast at some point in the future yeah well about. every game advisor i know are seen has made given like wrong advice that has happened you know what i mean pretty much everyone yeah i don't know if i've caught ruben out but definitely lee liam kelly i think kate Montfoy, linda a lot of them have like given advice and afterwards like yeah that wasn't the rules at all so like technology, uh, Game Advisor is questionable on, on their opinions. Yeah, yeah. So definitely the Game Advisor could have been an interesting topic. But uh, let's go to an ad real quick, and then we'll go to that interview with Ruben, and we'll be back in a little bit. Oh, yeah. I like Savage Apparel Company. I like the name Savage, actually, because it reminds me when I was in college, and we saw us play Savage, which is playing with just seven people. So I have fond memories of the word savage also we use it in Ireland all the time just saying stuff is like class or cool like every day I say like oh that's savage like a really good sandwich that's savage they have a factory in Europe so that they can make all their stuff for the European customers here won't be as bad for the environment yeah it's great for all the European Quidditch players <laughs> yeah they do do Quidditch so if you're a fan of Harry Potter then uh, you can help support a Quidditch company that's why they're called Savage Apparel not just Savage Ultimate I know. We used to have to share a field with Quidditch when I was in college, which left relationships frosty at times. But once I got to be the snitch, which involves putting on, like, usually a yellow morph suit. They just had, like, a high-vis thing, and you get to, like, run around and be the snitch, which is cool. I don't know if they do snitch apparel. Yeah, I wonder if they do. I mean, I guess they must, right? I don't know if they do morph suits. They do do fully sublimated jerseys, long sleeves, shorts, tank tops, and sun hoodies, but I don't know if they do morph suits. Well, we know who's getting the most money out of this sponsorship deal anyway, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> and it'll help you out, Liam, because they've got a UPF 50-plus rating to stop you from, you know, getting sunburnt. And there's free shipping on orders over $500. I don't know why they put dollars. They really should put euros or something in here. But uh, if you're worried about VAT and duties and tariffs and stuff like that, you don't have to worry about that because they're doing it all in Europe. And if you suck at art, they will help you out with artwork. They do free artwork for, for all team orders. That's pretty cool. Go to SavageUltimate.com if you want to uh, get some apparel for Ultimate or some Quidditch gear. 
Alright, take it easy, Ravi. That's enough. That's enough out of you now for a bit. Had to sneak in the ginger joke as well. I can make that joke. I don't know if you can make that joke. Okay? Did I say ginger? I just said you would sunburn. I don't know if I said ginger. <sighs> yeah, I, yeah, we all know what you meant. We're joined now by Ruben Berg, the chair of the WIFDIF Rules Committee. Ruben's calling us in from Australia here to talk a little about some new rules changes that have been made, uh, or at least changes that have been drafted up. But before we get into all that, Ruben, first of all, how are things going over there in Australia? Yeah, going not too badly over here. Obviously, there's uh, stuff happening all around the world, but we seem to be doing not too badly here in, uh, here in Australia. Cool. So great to have you on the show. A legend of the sport, I might say, Ruben. I think I know most notably for is actually your coaching roles. You were coach of the Aussie World Games team or assistant coach, I think, at one stage. Uh, yeah, so I was assistant coach of the Crocs back in 2009. Ah, oh, how was that? Yeah, that was that was an absolutely unbelievable experience. That was in Taiwan when we had the giant brand new stadium they'd built and you felt like we were playing a real sport and you were there for that. Like that was just amazing. Was it still like six on six back then? No, no, that was it was seven on seven then, but uh, the shorter Russ is obviously still. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was just, you know, to be in the stadium and you got a bus to take you everywhere and they, we had little chaperones and, you know, you go down to the change rooms and it's full of drinks and you just take what you want. And then there were people in the crowd with signs for players and, like, it was just this amazing, uh, phenomenal experience. And then the best ultimate players in the world uh, out there on the field, it was, uh, it was pretty incredible. So when and how did you actually start to get involved with WIFDIF, uh, either in any capacity or, or in the rules committee specifically? Yeah, it was 2008 uh, that I started getting involved in the rules. So at the time, Jonathan Potts, uh, who was the president of the World Flying Disc Federation, he was actually at that time still the chair of the rules committee. And uh, I was hassling him about some of the rules. We played league together and uh, had some ideas. And he said, come and join the committee and have some input there. And then when he decided to move on, he asked me to step up to be the chair. So been in that role now since 2009. Cool. And are you still playing a lot? Uh, would be, if not for what we're in at the moment. But uh, <laughs> uh, still playing Masters now. So I uh, actually was lucky enough to make the Australian Grandmasters team uh-huh. uh, for the upcoming World Masters Championships. So pretty excited about it. That's my first ever official Australian rep. I had to wait till Grandmasters to get it, but still pretty happy with that. Are they keeping that same team for next year since it's getting postponed a year? Or are they redoing tryouts uh, again? Not sure yet. We'll have to <laughs> wait and see. Fingers crossed. You might have to wait till great grandmasters, my friend. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. So talking about the rules committee, um, how is it actually structured? Are you the kind of global dictator or is there actually other people that work with you on this thing? <laughs> uh, benevolent dictator, I think I'd, I'd say. No, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole committee that we've got. Uh, we've got uh, 10 people on the committee there. Uh, people from all around the world. And so I kind of lead the conversations of that. So I'm the one who takes responsibility for actually drafting the rules. And then we share it out and we have conversations and have discussions about, you know, what needs to change and what doesn't need to change and get, how to get the right wording on there. And then from the ultimate rules committee, it goes up to the ultimate committee to get approved. And then it, it's always endorsed by the board finally as well. So there's, a, there's quite a formal process through all that. My experience of how the rules committee works is you get on Facebook Messenger and message Ruben about new rules, and then he'll say yes or no, basically. That's how it worked <laughs> with our, 
our color blindness rule, our color vision deficiency. If you know the right people and I get good information and people, people give me good suggestions, I'm always happy to take on suggestions and uh, see if it's a good idea. That's how it works. Yeah, no, yeah. that's how it works for us anyway. We made a rule together, kind of. That was kind we of, did? Yeah. yeah. We, still don't, we still don't have a hand signal for strip, though, but, you know. Yeah, that was, Whoa, that was going to be... Saving that for the end. That's coming. <laughs> don't worry. That one's coming. Save that one for later. <laughs> uh so, you know, the one big elephant in the room with WIFDIF rules is, of course, USAU and the fact that I think basically the rest of the world, except for maybe Canada and United States and maybe some South American countries uh, use WIFDIF, but USA has its own separate set of rules. I was curious, do you know the history of that? Which which organization came up with the rules first? And uh, yeah, maybe start off with that. So Definitely America came up with the rules first. I mean, okay. they, they, they invented the sport, so... They had the first rules there with Buzzy Hellring and Joel Silver and all that. I've had been lucky enough to, you know, trawl through those at times and look at those original sets of rules. There were refs in those rules, I think, in the original version. They, they said you could have, have refs and <laughs> there was no limit on how many players you could have and all sorts of stuff. So, But they came up with the sport, I guess, so they had their rules. But I'm not quite sure about when it did actually transition to there being a WFDF set and a USAU, or UPA, obviously back then set. But at some point in time, they split. And then it seems that for a certain period of time, neither group talked to one another and they just went off and did their own thing merrily. And then since I've been around, we've tried to much more bring that back together. And here's maybe a spicy question. And it's there's two different ways to answer it. But basically, do you think that the USA should or will ever adopt the WIFTIF rule set? So I think Part of what's really interesting about how this all works is that the USAU is, I guess, on a regular basis, the highest level of ultimate that gets played. And they also have observers. So what I find interesting about the USAU system is I think their rules are the most stress-tested of any of the rule sets. So that's an interesting difference between why, I guess, it might be important they have their own rule set because they're playing so much and they've got so much more oversight in the detail of the rules, I guess, one of a better description. But I think it's okay that some nations use slightly different rules. I guess what I would strive for if I had my, my ideal kind of scenario would be that everyone around the world uses the WFDF rules but if there were reasons why they might have variations, they could just have variations to those rules and say, we're going to play with WFDF, but with these additions. And I think that might be possible, whether that means that our rules look much more like their rules, just with a few differences as well. But, um, you know, I think that's not unachievable. And we're getting really close in terms of actual convergence around the smaller details. And there are just those few kind of key differences that still kind of exist, which are differences in terms of how we view the game. Uh, I guess, and and what we kind of want the game to be about. Cool. So, yeah, one minor thing I just wanted to ask, it actually kind of got answered in the new version of the rules. Um, I was on Felix Shardlow's show uh, a little while ago, and we had a little bit of a debate, and we were arguing whether after you catch a disc, do you have to, like, have your pivot point set in your head when you catch the disc and come to a stop, or... Can you just like kind of opportunistically keep both feet on the ground and then choose your pivot point, like choose your pivot foot afterwards, like responding to what the defense is doing? 
The new rules actually added a, in the definition for pivots, it seems to specifically say now that if you have two options for or more options for a pivot point, you only need to decide when you pivot. Um, was that always the intention or was it not? Because I was on the other side of this. I thought, you know, reading the rules that it seemed to me that you kind of had to set your pivot as you slowed down and stopped, not after when you wanted to pivot. Um, I mean, they weren't explicit enough in that, but you know, really, we don't want the rules to have to assume that you can need to read someone's mind to know okay. what's going on. So, <laughs> you know, we've made it more clear now that you can choose what your pivot is when you actually pivot. Okay. Which I think is better. Yeah. I read your mind to know what you wanted to do and I, I solved it already. So. <laughs> okay. Before we get into the rule changes, Ruben, can you tell us a bit more about your ultimate experiences? Any good stories for us? So I think based on everything I've talk to and everything I've kind of understood that I'm the only person in the world who's been to every world club championships, guts championships and world games since 2006. So I've been to every one of those and I don't think anyone else in the world has been to all three of those for the last, since 2006, which I think is pretty cool. Is that the longest streak you think out of anyone? That's pretty. Oh, I'd say so. World yeah. games. That's, you know, if you include world games, then it's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> cool. Out of all those world championships, what's been your your favorite one? Uh, I think go back to World Games 2009. That's still mm -hmm. the best. Um, is, there, is there any on-field memories of that, of like any really good games or moments? Yeah, of that, that tournament. Oh, yeah. When we beat Japan, when Australia beat Japan, um, that was just uh, such an amazing experience because uh, I was on the sideline, obviously, as part of the coaching staff, and just to get that win was just one of the best moments of ultimate for me, even not playing just as a coach on the sideline was just an amazing experience. Who were the heroes of that game? Like who were made the standout well, Australian players? You know, uh, the, the usuals, but Mike Neald, who I actually started playing with, I, he was a rookie when he turned up to play league with me. And I remember just practicing throwing hammers to him so that he could catch them as high as he could. And I think he ended up throwing a bunch of hammers in that game himself to, to help us win that game. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, it was pretty your, special watching him out there as well. Your indirect contribution uh, there. <laughs> That's right. Okay, let's uh, go to the new rules. So first off, the title of the new rules, it's I think the first time you have set a date, a year range for the new rules. It's usually just the WIFDIF rules. The last one was 2017. Before that, I think maybe 2013. Now it's the WIFDIF rules 2021 to 2024. So can you talk about why you decided to change that? For sure. So we have used this cycle and we've kind of stated we'd use this cycle of every four years re-looking at the rules. And, you know, I could understand that for some people it might be confusing to know, you know, it's 2019, what rules are we using? Are we using the 2017 rules? And, you know, people wondering, are the new rules in? What are we doing? So we thought we'd put a figure on it like this. And that's also what USAU did with their latest rule set. So I thought that was a good way to give clarity over when these rules apply for and if if in 2024 we don't end up making any changes, we can just change it to 2024 to whenever it's going to be. And do you think four years is a good cycle? I know like our colleagues in the Deep Look podcast, they think that there's more more rules experimentation needs to happen to progress the sport. So do you think four years is the, the right kind of balance of that? I think so. Partly it was to do with world cycles was one of the things as well, to get like a cycle of world championships through a set of rules. But also when you're talking about a self-officiated sport, like I don't think you want to change it willy-nilly because people, every player needs to know the rules who's playing. And so you don't want to change it too frequently, but you also don't want to leave it without opportunities to, to address things. So that's why we've got that four-year cycle in there. And it's worked for the last three cycles. So. 
Cool. All right. So going to the rules, I'll put up my first question here, which is, I think, more of a general thing that I saw throughout the rules, which is that you changed incidental contact to minor contact throughout the rules. Can you explain the decision to do that? Yeah, for sure. So there were two reasons behind that. One is that the definition of incidental contact in WFDF rules and in USAU rules was actually different. So Mm -hmm. we were using the same word, but it meant a different thing. So that was confusing. So we thought we'd either need to make our definition exactly the same as theirs or change the terminology. So we decided to change the terminology. And the other issue was that in our definition of incidental before, it was really kind of quite circular. Like it talked about that it affected the play. And then when you resolved a play, you talked about whether it affected the play. And so we wanted to just have a type of contact that was independent of the outcome of the play. It was just how did it affect the person in the play? And then once you determined it did affect the person, you could then have a separate conversation of, well, did that actually affect the play? So we okay. separated those two elements. Yeah, so right now, minor contact, which I guess is is used as something to maybe not be a foul if it's minor, at least that's one use of it, is now defined as contact that involves minimal physical force and does not alter the movements or position of another player. Contact with an opponent's extended arms or hands that are about to or already are contacting the disc or contact to the thrower's hand during the throwing motion is never considered to be minor contact. So that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little different than I think what you said before about incidental contact. Yeah, that's right. The idea is that for it to be a foul, it's got to be non-minor. So it's got to be something that, you know, altered your movements or your position, but mm-hmm. recognizing that any contact to your arm as you're about to catch a Frisbee is going to be, make a difference Okay. to how you could do that. Cool. So the next thing that I noticed was the offsides rule that I'm curious because this this version draft doesn't have the appendix, so it's just the main body of the rules. There's definitely some changes into how you, you talk about offsides here, but you don't have the strict penalties really that there are in the appendix. So is the appendix still going to hold for championship events or... Or what's going on here? Well, you must be looking at the wrong appendix. So um, the latest appendix, the one that just came out, that's all right. The latest (laughs) appendix from this year actually changed to this rule. So we're actually just Uh. reflecting the new appendix into the body of the main rules. So it used to just be in, if you're playing league and you weren't using the appendix, offside would just be a repool, assuming that someone actually called offside in your local league game. Um, (laughs) But now there's the rule that matches the appendix, which is saying there's not really a penalty is so it's about how do you restart play assuming that they hadn't done that breach kind of that's more so the approach we're taking now okay okay yeah i actually really disliked the old offside rules in like a philosophical kind of way i felt like you were being punished with the kind of taking in the middle of your end zone or or i think the offense offside was like from halfway or, or stuff like that it didn't really sit with me uh that well is that is that why you changed or was it to kind of speed up the game so there's there's a couple of things there so that rule that we brought in well that was a direct result of the task force the spirit of the game task force we had back in 2013 which is the start of game advisors um that task force we looked at ways of increasing the speed of the game and addressing certain issues and one of those recommendations was to match the usau rule which at the time was that rule with the, the penalties so to speak we then looked at that some more. We tried it and we've used it and we thought actually that that's not quite what we want to do. It's a, as you said, I think it's that spirit of the idea of there's no penalties. There's not supposed to be a penalty. You're supposed to recreate what most likely would have happened had there been no breach. And that was, this rule did not sit well with that. 
Um, USAU have also changed the way they do this. They still have, if you do this multiple times, there is that extra additional change of field position, but we haven't added that part to it. We've just said, no matter how many times you're offside, this is always going to be what happens. Yeah, the next thing I've written down here, actually, I'm going to read it too, because um, it's not really a question about a new rule, but I, I had a question with the delay of game in 10.5. This has always kind of struck me as a bit weird, and I, I wanted to ask your call on it, because it always says, if the delay continues, then like you can start stalling without verification from the opposition. What's the time gap between like saying delay of game and then it continuing, and then you can just do it, because it's not so clear there to me? Sure, so we, we do have an annotation for that rule, uh, which I think is two seconds or something like that. Okay. Um, but we deliberately haven't included that sort of detail in here because a lot of times this is about what's the spirit of the rule again. So the point is to just don't delay. Like we want players not to delay. And this mm -hmm. is just a way of saying, hey, remember you're not supposed to delay. And the assumption is that the players will, you know, want to follow the rules and do it the correct way. One of our concerns, if we start putting in detail around, well, then you've got to do this and then they've got to do that and you've got to do this, then the other team might say, well, you didn't, that wasn't two seconds, that was 1.5 seconds, so now we're going to stop play to discuss that. <laughs> and that, that's that's not useful. So, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, looking at rule 12.7, initiating contacts, could you clarify a bit on this and like who initiated contacts as we made some changes there? Well, I mean, there was never really a rule about this. There was, there was a lot of this stuff, including in 12.6 as well, where we talk about the expansion of expected positioning and speed and direction and this other issue around initiate contact. A lot of that was kind of existed in the annotations. Uh, and so we've kind of just tried to bring that into the main body of the rules. But uh, hopefully it's kind of straightforward what we're talking about there, that if you're there first, then you can't have been the one who initiated contact unless you change your direction to get there in a way that they couldn't have avoided. So if you're both running in straight lines and you get there before them, then they've initiated the contact by hitting you. But if they're running in a straight line and you run and then jump in front of them, uh, despite you getting there first, you're the one who's initiated the contact. All right. The next thing I saw was this order of calls thing in 15.12. Um, it says if multiple breaches in the same play or before play stops, the outcome should be resolved in reverse sequence. Latest breach first and earliest breach last. Um, I don't, I don't actually remember. I, I've played a lot of games of Frisbee and, and commented a lot of games of Frisbee. I don't know if this ever has really come up, but uh, what exactly are you trying to clarify with this? So this is the idea of there's a, a, a throw that happens and there's a foul called but between the throw and the marker, but then the disc goes forward and there's a foul called between the receivers trying to catch the Frisbee. Uh, and so it's trying to work out how do you resolve those things and saying, well, you should resolve the receiving issue first because if it's a turnover or if it's a catch, that makes a difference to what happens between the throw and the marker foul. And so that's just trying to tease out the, the best way to resolve oh. those issues. Yeah. Cool. It's like I've thought of everything here when you ask questions. There's actually <laughs> been a reason why I've done these things. I There's logic so. to I your matters. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go to rule 17.211 and it's the hitting hands after a foul. I guess this is one of the... The kind of the big ones that's come up recently. Can you talk a little about how you came to this rule? Why why you've made the change? Sure. So again, this is this is pretty much a reflection of what we had in the appendix for this year. Um, it's slightly changed, but the the meaning of it hasn't really changed. It's just we've clarified some of the wording. And this came about from ongoing conversations, I guess, with USAU and with our own committee about what is actually acceptable in terms of contact when you're trying to catch the Frisbee and what's not acceptable. 
Um, from looking at how the USAU is played and their rules, um, they're a bit more lenient in terms of what happens after you get in the block. But if you've gotten the block, the outcome is determined. And so any contact after that isn't necessarily a receiving foul, unless it's dangerous from, from the way they look at it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't quite want to go down that track to the extent of, um, I guess, almost normalizing how you had to describe what dangerous play was. And so, but we did want to realize that it's not always a foul just because you hit someone's hand afterwards. And the previous rules kind of allowed for this in terms of how you defined incidental contact, but there was a bit too much leeway for interpretation in that. So we wanted to be really clear about it. And to actually get to this point, I actually got a couple of friends and we went down to a park and we spent a couple of hours uh, fouling each other, uh, <laughs> throwing passes, initiating contact, doing it before they train in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> we did this for educational purposes, uh, and we had we had two two people filming it from different angles, and then we cut that all together uh, to make a variety of different clips which I then separated out into, well, this is a foul that occurs before the cats, this is after, this is just to the hands, this is to the hands. I then sent that out to our rules committee and the USAU rules committee and got people to say which ones you think are a foul and which ones aren't a foul. Not based on what the rule is, but what you think, you know, inherently mm-hmm. should be allowed in the game. And from that, I tried to distill what the kind of overarching sense was of what should or shouldn't be a foul. And that led to this, this change here of saying, well, the majority of times we strongly felt that if you had already got block and then all you did was hit someone's hands afterwards, that that block should still stand. And so that's how we came to write the rule this way. When you did that experiment, how much variation was there usually on each outcome? Were most of them pretty unanimous or did you see some that were pretty varied in interpretation? <laughs> Interestingly enough, there were almost none that were unanimous, okay. um, but there was, there was a strong majority. It was sometimes just one or two with a different perspective. And lots of times that was because they had a slightly different perspective on what had actually occurred in the play. So when people agreed on what had occurred in the play, the outcome was pretty clear. So that was one way we kind of distinguished between those different perspectives. I want to get to this marking infraction thing because I think this is interesting because now wrapping and straddling have been changed so that the like line between your hand, arms and the line between your feet have to be a disc distance away from the pivot point. Um, can you talk about why you made that change? I think it's to do with David Amori, isn't it? <laughs> it's a David Amori rule. <laughs> this, is, this is a USAU rule. This is a rule they've had like this for, for some time. And four years ago, we already we did update these straddle and, and wrapping rules but we didn't go to the extent of making it to the one disc width additional part. And um, after review, after the four years, we thought we, it's better to just have this alignment there with USAU. And uh, the consequence is obviously that markers seemingly will have to move back if they want to have a legal mark. And we think the consequences there are actually pretty good in most regards in that uh, it minimizes the chances that there's going to be fouls between the throw and the marker, which often causes stoppages and those sorts of things. So um, the, the mark does need to move back further now to have a legal mark. I mean, but did you really do this because of the coronavirus outbreak? Because that's what I'm pretty much assuming that's what happened here. Uh, No, not quite. (laughs) All right, Liam, let's get to travels. Travels. So I actually, before I saw this rules, I definitely preferred how WFDF interpreted travels and disliked, I guess, what was many people call the kind of three points of contact or whatever way, like three steps you hear people say, USAU rule here, but it seems like you've gone the other way and kind of gone closer to USAU. Uh, so what's going on with the new travel rules? Yeah, so, I mean, the intention is it's exactly the same as the USAU rule. 
and this was a rule that we used to have in the Woofdorf rule set. Uh, I think even back to 2008, we used to have this as the rule, these number of steps that you could throw without having to, to slow down. Um, we moved away from that and we've now gone back to it. And partly this was around, well, majority, this is around convergence with USAU, but not just in a kind of pedantic sense. This was actually kind of more of a, on a philosophical sense as well, is that there are still differences between the WFDF set and the USAU rule set, but most of the time they're just about how you resolve a call. Like there's been a call and now what are you going to do to try and resolve that? That might be different in the two rule sets. This difference we realized was actually a fundamental difference in how people play the game. And um, the USAU game is probably the most watched game in the world. Like most people watch that. If you're going to sit down and watch a video, um, you're likely going to watch some USAU play. And so for the whole world to watch that and see people play in certain ways, like you watch Dylan Freechild play and our rules don't allow you to play like that in WFDF. Um, and so not only did the players have to change a new rules understanding if they came to play in WFDF from a USAU, they actually had to change the way they played. And so we thought that that was an inconsistency that wasn't, wasn't necessary. We didn't think that the, the balance of this change to what some uncertainty it might bring in terms of how to officiate that rule wasn't as important as actually having the game being played the same way across the world and that you could watch and see a tactic in one place and you could apply that in your own place and not think, well, actually, that tactic is against the rules in our country. So if this is one of those cases, why do you think that it's WIFDIF that has to change to USAU and not the other way around? I know you're only in control of one of them, but... Uh... Yes, yes, yes. yes sure. <laughs> the, and definitely um, I missed a key part of that in that we do have really important conversations with USAU and say, well... These are some of the issues we're looking at and for some of the rules, as you would have noticed in their later set, they changed to our rules because they realised that there's that difference there and then for this one they, they were strong that they felt their rule worked quite well and so we were happy to shift over to theirs. I wouldn't say it's a trade-off. It's not like, well, if we do this one, you'll do that one. It's just us thinking about it together of which one we think is the best based on our experiences uh, and who might be looking to change and who might not be looking to change and trying to find uh, the best outcome there. All right. I'm going to throw this out there that I'm still a bigger fan of the WIFDIF way. I think that having like two additional points of contact is a bit arbitrary and weird. And I, I like that just you have to be slowing down and maintain ground contact. To me, it like just sits nicer, but I'm not the one making the rules. So I guess we got to go with what Ruben decides. <laughs> That's very good logic to have there. Go for it. I <laughs> have <laughs> uh, a spicy question, which uh, I'm sure the Ulti.TV crew will be happy to hear I'm asking, and that's the, I think it was in the appendix, actually, and that's the use of technology. Was it in the appendix or is it in the main rules? I can't it's remember. It's in the appendix. It's in the appendix, yeah. Uh, how that's changed in, I think you can only use technology to the detriment of your own team. Is that, is that the kind of interpretation? Or you can, you talk about the logic behind the use of technology is probably a better way to ask that question. Sure. So, I mean, this is a change that we brought in for the appendix for, uh, for this year. And it is around how we use technology and, and, you know, videos being more prevalent along the sideline and all those sorts of things. And the best way to kind of use that technology and actually make it in a way that's kind of fair. And so I think to me, and this is different from, I know I've seen lots of conversations online about these sorts of things, that it's one thing to ask someone from the sideline what they think about a play. And, and the rules say you can ask anyone on the sideline what they think about a play and they're going to give their opinion. And that's one thing. But when you're asking someone about what they saw on a video, that rightly or wrongly seems to carry more weight 
there seems to be more weight to what someone saw on a video. And there's, there's less of a, I guess, a feeling that someone can disagree with what someone saw from a video. That, that seems more definitive, that I saw on the video that it was out and it's, it's harder for someone to disagree with that. And so what we wanted to do was to make it so that if you're going to give that sort of what would seem like definitive advice based on a video, that you should only do that it's to the detriment of their team. And part of this came out because I've seen situations where someone has actually come and said, my teammate has called it up and I saw the video and it's up. And that other player there says, well, I mean, I disagree still, but I'm going to have to, like you've said it was on the video. And when you looked at that video footage, it wasn't clear that it was up, but the player had felt on the sideline had felt that it was clear that it was up. And so this idea that video and photographs are some sort of perfect objective measure, I think is one of the reasons why we've shifted to this specific situation where we're saying, if you're going to give advice based on the photo or the video, you should only give it if it's to the detriment of their team. And if you think it's really good evidence, you should get someone from your, the other team to come and look at it as well. And they'll go and tell their team the same thing. Yeah. So I'm going to push back a little bit and maybe, you know, maybe you agree or don't agree. So I'll, I'll just read it out. It says, if the team members, this is B7.1.1, if team members on the sideline are provided advice based on photographic or video footage, they must only provide evidence if asked and only if the outcome will be to the detriment of their own team. So this is the thing that I find a little bizarre because first you have to wait till you're asked anyways. So if you're asked and then somebody says, you know, I saw it up, that doesn't preclude any other opponent on the sideline from coming and looking at it. So that seems weird. But to me, it's weird because it's like you're looking at a photo, somebody asks you, you think it's in your own team's favor, you basically just can't say anything now. And that's just a very strange rule to me. Like, it should be like, I think it's up. If you want to come look, you can take a look. Like, that to me makes sense. But to, to say you can't give advice if it's, unless it's detrimental, makes it seem like, yeah, that also kind of removes some trust in assuming players are being honest and also makes a very, very awkward situation. Yeah. Well, as I said, I've already seen very awkward situations with it the other way. And so this is the way we went to try and address that. And I can see there's, there's different ways of looking at it, but I think there's, there's complications with both ways of doing it. And so we've decided to go this way to address that. Yeah. Like I, I think you're right, Ruben. And like, obviously me and Ravi have worked a lot of broadcasts that, Technology, this kind of technology is almost new to our sport in, in some ways to have those kind of replays there and screens that we're kind of getting used to what that means for our self-refereed sport. And I think you're right. Often people give too much weight to the opinion of someone who's seen something on a replay or whatnot. I think I don't know if you follow Felix Shadlow. He often put us, puts up replays of ups and downs and ins or out and gets people to vote on Instagram. And often it's like 60-40 yep. or 70-30 it's very rarely when he puts up one that is, you know, people who've watched the slow-mo replay still have differing opinions. And I think that's just something we need to get across the community that often it's not obvious or clear. Sometimes you look at a replay and maybe something like you can use. It's rarely definitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, sometimes it is. Like there's definitely like when it's really close up and downs or in and outs, it's actually the, it is it's difficult. But sometimes it actually is very clear. You'll see a, a foot and liner or something like that. And I think I would love to see the use of technology only in clear and obvious situations that if there's any interpretation, then you shouldn't give your opinion. That's what I'd like to see. If it's like sometimes there is a clear and obvious replay 
And I've been in situations, I was actually in the USA where they had a replay, but obviously they have observers, they call in or out, and they showed the replay and it was very obvious, but they could do nothing about it. And I, I feel like we might end up in that scenario where it's like, oh, there's actually a really, really good replay. And as you said, a lot, a lot of the time it's not. I, I think maybe even more often than not, it's not obviously clear. But I think if it is, you should be able to say that. And and have that and have that trust because I feel like there's a, a lack of spirit of the game or trust in this scenario where, you know, you can only say it to the detriment of your team. You can't argue your own your own viewpoint for your own team. It, again, like the offside rules, it feels something feels like off in terms of how we we structure our sport. I mean, you can think about it. Uh, you know, obviously, we're not the people who decide. But if I were to write it, I might suggest not saying that you can't give advice if it's to benefiting your team, but put a clause like, if it benefits your team, it's strongly encouraged that you have an opponent give a second opinion on the same technology or something like that, where it would be like kind of promoting that if it's to the benefit, just like make sure somebody double checks it rather than make it so that you can't give advice because that can't give advice to me just seems, I don't know, it sits weird to me. Yeah, and to, just to clarify that must only provide advice based on the photographic or video footage. Is that right. that element of it? Yeah. Right, but I still, mean, provide I still advice mean with that. In other ways, but yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I think that that could be another way to look at that in terms of providing that out. To me, it's still those two fundamental issues: is that people perceive someone providing advice from video or photo to be stronger weighted than other advice. And that people watching video and footage um, feel like they can come to a more of an absolute sense of what happened than I think they really can. So, All right. So I think we're getting close to the end of this interview. We've gone for a long time. Thanks so much, Ruben. But we got a couple things to, to finish this off on. You've missed the oh, most important change that happened in the rules. All right. Let's go to, let's go to that first. What's, uh, what's the most important one? I, I thought I did a good job of reading, but uh, here. Yeah, no, you, look, you did a very good job. But uh, <laughs> I, just the other day, I realized that since 2006, at least, I went back and looked at every old version of the rules. Since 2006, in the definitions of the rules of Ultimate, possession of the disc was not in alphabetical order. It was in the wrong spot. It was between <laughs> player and playing field. And no one had brought it to my attention for 14 years. Um, and so finally, possession of the disc is in the correct alphabetical order in the definitions. Yeah, it's, it's very, very important stuff. Um, but yeah, we'll get to the last couple of things here. You mentioned it earlier before, but from a broadcaster's point of view, Ruben, please, please, please make there be a separate hand signal for a strip foul. <laughs> please. <laughs> We're begging you. Yeah. Like, it seems so obvious to me. Like I, I was watching a load of games during lockdown and pretty much every game, this goes the end zone. Two people go up. There's some contact. You're not sure what it is. Foul's called. And we're like, well, we don't know if this is a stripper foul. We don't know what they're talking about. It's going to be a different resolution. And for fans watching, and you're like, if you can't hear the players and for broadcasters, but I think just fans, let's just think, think about the fans and not me and Ravi. It's it's really annoying. And I think it'd be super easy. I wanted to be the crocodile clap catch or maybe like a, a baby shark kind of a thing. <laughs> Clappy. That's my suggestion. You can you can use that if you want, but just do it. What? Why? What's? Why not? Why not, Ruben? So, so to clarify, the concern here is the difference between the two seconds it would take for them to signal it was a goal after they resolved the call, or to start walking no. towards the end zone. Is no, 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 no. It's the, it's the while the, it's while the discussion is going on, because when we when we're as broadcast, at least this is what I one of the things I care most about. It's while they're talking about it, with a hand signal helps broadcasters know what's happening and what's being discussed. 
And if if we're wondering, are they arguing about a strip or just a foul? Like that's a very significant thing that happens and we wish we could know. And the same thing if I'm a player on the field, when I see the discussion happening, the hand signals help me to understand what's being discussed. So that distinction would be very helpful, I think. Also, we usually are looking at a replay if you're watching a live broadcast. And quite often you'll see a slow-mo of it and you're like, okay, it's a strip. Well, let's see. And now I'm looking to see if they had control. It's like, oh no, they called a foul. Well, now I'm looking to see if there's contact or, you know, if you saw a strip hand signal, you'd immediately re-watching that replay in your head thinking, well, did they have control? So I think it actually does change how, how the fan would watch the sport when, when they see that hand signal. You immediately know what they're discussing. Otherwise, you're trying to guess whether it's a strip or a foul they called. I hear ya. Um, <laughs> Sounds keep, like keep we got this one go. in the bag, Ravi. Sounds like we got this one in the bag. Keep, keep having a go. Look, I, my, my, my much preferred scenario is to have really good uh, directional microphones so that everyone can hear all the conversations that's happening on the field. Uh, and that would be the best way to resolve all these issues. But look, uh, I hear you and uh, there's no guarantees. Uh, I, I don't like, as I said, part of this is I don't like adding extra things when I don't need to. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see, we'll see what, you know, what happens from the listeners after this. If the listeners after this all start bombarding me with messages saying uh, we need the strip signal, um, I might just not ignore them all. <laughs> <laughs> so you heard that, all listeners. Right. Bombard him. Please bombard him. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Ruben. Thanks for coming on. That was quite an in-depth talk on, on rules, the new rules, and everything going on. If, if you guys have any comments, uh, feel free to shout them out here. We'll try and forward them to Ruben, or Ruben will probably see them himself. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, and we hope to have you back in the future if you ever want to come talk to rules to the European community. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful. All right, Liam, that was Ruben Berg. Um, we did kind of take a pause on our little World Games series. So we'll, we'll try and do France in the next podcast. Uh, we're still looking for people who want to talk about France. So if you're a French expert, uh, get in touch with us and we'll try and get you on the pod to, to come and talk about the French World Games team. I just wanted to mention quickly, you know, you were talking before the interview about how game advisors get things wrong. We talked in the interview about this travel rule change like uh, going from the, you know, slowing down ground contact thing to the three, the two extra steps rule that the USAU does. That was something that happened to me at LECO when the, there was a guy who was clearly a USAU observer and he was doing game advising for the first time. And in our game, we played against a Korean team, Boom, that had Americans on their team. And I forget if they called travel on us or we called travel on them, but the game advisor uh, agreed with the American that it was two steps, not the keep a foot contact. And I was like, that's not true. But I couldn't like argue with him because he's the game advisor. And then later on, I showed him the rules and he was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm an American. Uh, I normally go by USAU rules. Like, what, what are you doing here? Oh, the, the USAU observers that get turned into game advisors are the worst. <laughs> For sure. I'm been in games it hasn't happened yet but there will be one point where i will ignore them and i will be glad to do so <laughs> because i my favorite is liam kelly telling the italians after timeout they were slowly off the field the coach i think david hadn't got off the field yet when they were supposed to have said after timeout and they i think it was was it usa or whoever in italy were playing called a time violation and they're like oh what do we do and the answer is nothing you just <laughs> he has to get off the field. You can't play when someone's on the field. There's no punishment. But then Liam Kelly told him to go to a reverse brick them. Made them... What? Yeah, penalized them yards. So they had to go to like the, the reverse brick mark in the 
in the middle of their end zone off the timeout, which made absolutely no sense, and he did it. <laughs> and my point is not that, like, Game Advice is bad. It's just that they're fallible. They're normal people, and usually they're actually are right, so I don't want to be hitting on Game Advisors, but... I'm it's actually pro-game advisor, too. Yeah, so, I'm 100% pro-game advisor. I've had problems with them before in the past. I've said I've definitely been looking out to catch out Ruben, and I've not caught him out yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we can get him. Um, I think that'll do it for this episode of Eurozone. Thanks so much to Ruben for coming out. Uh, I've been Ravi Vasudevan. I've been Liam Grant, and we will E-U later. Darling.